welcome to Season 7 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that's dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I am joined by the fabulous Nina Hersher, who is CEO of the Digital Wellness Institute, author of the best-selling book, Your Playbook for Thriving in the Remote Work Era, and an internationally renowned speaker. Nina is a leading expert in digital wellness who holds a specialized master's in social work in digital culture, culture and program development. She co-founded Digital Wellness Day, which reached over 7.5 million people across the globe last year in 2021. She runs a consulting firm called Evolving in the Digital Age, which is dedicated to best practices in mental health in a fast-paced world. Most recently, Hershey's, your work has featured has been featured in publications, including the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Al Jazeera, and Voice of America. Welcome so much to the show, Nina. Thank you so much for having me, Anita. It's a pleasure to be here today. I feel so excited to unpack this conversation with you because I think that there's so much relevance to my own personal life, but also just, I think we're all in this state of like, how do we figure this out? So I wonder, first of all, whether or not there's actually a personal backstory to how you got into this work. There is, there is, and it has many, many, many layers. So I got into this work actually through a lot of kind of encounters in my early, early childhood. Um, so growing up, I had a very hard time talking. I've actually been in fluency counseling and coaching since I was about four. And when I was really young, it could take me a long time to even say a word because I would just get blocked on it. And so you may even hear me sometimes have like a little block and just exhale and begin again. But I think that that experience coupled with being an only child um, made for a very challenging and interesting childhood because I got to really spend a lot of the time with adults, a lot of time observing the world around me, and a lot of time noticing how people would treat each other um, and having either a lot of empathy or no empathy at all in a lot of cases. And so what really got me into this field was having all of those encounters at such an early age, I noticed that sometimes I would try and talk to someone and they wouldn't even know I was trying to talk to them because they were just texting. And especially when I was quite young, I used eye contact to really let people know I was trying to be in touch with them when I was having a block and when I was having a hard time talking and people were just in these, in these other worlds. And so from that very early age, I became a little bit, uh, intrigued and a little bit horrified by kind of these changing norms of connection or lack of connection that I was seeing. And that really made me want to focus on this all the more as I entered into the professional education phase of my life. You know, it's so interesting because if I didn't know that about you and we just met at a cocktail party or a conference, we'd have a little chit chat. I think, you know, you got it all together. And I think so many um, lived experiences are behind the surface, right? And but we're all walking around with, you know, some things that we are grappling with, some more, some less than others. Um, and so you just said some, you used the word empathy earlier. I just wonder how has your experience as a person, um, uh, you know, with that uh, block you call it, 
um, changed your perception of human empathy just out of curiosity? I think I, I have experienced it such that when people actually slow down enough to observe what's going on um, with others that might not be obvious, you can really tap into what someone else might be having a hard time with, or you might be able to tap into that in a deeper level. And I think that's also part of what has brought me to this work today is we live in such a world of connection where everything's so fast paced that sometimes that can be a challenge to slowing down. It can be a challenge to that introspection. And so I think that we're actually sometimes seeing that people are like empathy. I don't even know what, what that means because we're, we're used to this kind of constant input from the world around us in this age of a more kind of extractive attention economy. Extraction. Oh, I, that's so it's extractive. It's a resource extractive, but attention re, re, extractive. That's a really interesting frame. So you use this term digital flourishing. What does that mean? So digital flourishing is the unique kind of approach of the Institute, which is the company that I've co-created with an amazing team. And digital flourishing kind of came out of digital wellness and well-being. And so when when we're talking about that kind of traditional, what is digital wellness, we're talking about what is that optimum place of health and well-being that each individual using technology is capable of achieving. And there's this big question mark around that, right? But my work and interest is really in how can we look at tech in a healthy tech versus anti-tech way since it's all around us. Um, And so we have an incredible research director who actually coined that term. And what it means is a more kind of aware, uh, slow, and I would say um, a mindful approach to tech usage where we get to enjoy all of the beautiful parts of life it can bring us, we're avoiding some of those associated harms like tech neck and Zoom fatigue and all of those other things. We kind of have the tools um, to flourish both online and, and, and offline. And if you go to digitalflourishing.com, you'll actually see that there is this tool that was just created and it was validated over the course of the last two years where people can actually see how am I doing with all of these different areas of technology ranging from productivity to their home office and their environment to their, you know, in engagement with peers and so much more because for different people, the kind of challenge that they're having with tech is showing up in all different ways. But when you really look at it, you'll see that those challenges are extremely interconnected. You know, we're going to have that link in our description below. It's also um, one of the tools in the book, um, because I think it's really important to kind of get a sense of like, where do you, where are you so far in that? Because I think, at least for me, I I tend to on the continuum be, you know, a late adopter and a bit technologically uh, slow relative to some early adopters. (laughs) And maybe I even have some reservations, but what I'm hearing you say is, look, it's around us. Let's not be like anti-tech about it. Cause that's not 
going to, it's not going to go away. Let's find the middle ground where each of us can find our own sweet spot to flourish and live and coexist with technology in a way where we still continue to live happy, full, abundant lives. And we're not, you know, enslaved to the culture of technology and, and it's a healthy relationship. That's what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And I I feel like there are really two parts within that that have become really prominent over the past year and a half. And those are how can we kind of explore and engage in maybe different habits to support this healthier tech relationship? Um, But also, how can we look at the different apps and tools we're using for tech enabled health? And really beyond that, even are we letting kind of the companies and all of the people who are creating these tech tools know what we want out of them? Because all of this tech was created so quickly that, you know, there's a lot of arguments that some was designed just to kind of extract our attention. But I do believe that some tools just came about so quickly that this idea of kind of human human-centered design wasn't really around yet. And so we almost need to rewind the clock and say, okay, how can my computer, how can my phone be more supportive to my health? And that's what we're seeing come out right now, which is so beautiful is, you know, you can wake up and your phone can be adjusted so that you're not seeing blue light at a time when you wouldn't, you know, see it if it's like 9 p.m. or, you know, we can really play with all of these different tools so that it is about both the intentional use and development of tech for human flourishing. Right, right, right. So um, what are a few things you think that people can do to support their own digital wellness? Yeah, for, you know, at an individual level, maybe with kids, maybe in the organizational space. Yeah, absolutely. So I love to kind of address this question from the lens of social ecology and looking at kind of humans and their relationship with their environment and also each other. Um, and so if if we're using kind of that lens, we have the personal, interpersonal and kind of collective frameworks. And so I can give you a tip for for each. And, and I would say that it, it does begin with each of our individual actions and what we can control, which is only our own actions. And so on that individual tier, the biggest thing I can encourage people to do is to not use their phone or not check their computer for the first half an hour of waking up and at least half an hour before you're planning to fall asleep. And there are a lot of different reasons to do this, but including, I think some of the highlights are when, when we're first waking up, this is a precious time. This is a quiet time. This is a time for introspection waking up and we're kind of in that precious time. What happens is we have this opportunity for introspection to see what do I need? What am I craving to go outside, to touch the earth, to walk around the block, to expose ourselves to healthy blue light from the sun, which helps us wake up. When we're checking our phone or our email or computer first thing, we're almost putting ourselves into this on-call place where we might even be holding our breath. There's some really interesting research going on for something called email apnea, which is people are actually holding their breath when they're checking their email. And if you think about how often people are checking their email every day, you can think about the toll that this is taking on our physical system. And by the same token, when we're falling asleep, when you're falling asleep, you're actually in this very light place of 
hypnosis. And so just like we might say, kids don't watch the news before you fall asleep, you'll have horrible dreams. We want to be very aware of what we're allowing to trickle in. So if we're falling asleep to news or if we're falling asleep to a TV show, not only is that blue light, but it's also something that could impact our dreams. And so if half an hour seems like too much, maybe even just trying, you know, 20 minutes or 10 minutes, but seeing how it feels to just be with who you are and checking in with what you need before going to check your phone is the biggest recommendation I can make on the personal front. I remember it triggers for me um, back in the day uh, with one of the jobs that I had, I would literally sometimes wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and be checking my phone in the middle of the night. And then of course you'd be like answering the most important. And then all of a sudden try to go back to sleep. So I really feel that you're speaking about like a healthy approach to your relationship with email and your phone. Um, But how do you move from, if you are in this like addictive state, are you just saying like from one day to the next cold Turkey, like try 10 minutes without, like, is there a little process that you kind of wean yourself or. Yeah. So I'm a big advocate of kind of the, and not, or framework, because sometimes, you know, you want to eat ice cream along with your broccoli. And so I think to that end, we can begin with these kind of smaller incremental changes and see what works. And we can also try them with a friend to support that kind of collective intention, collective accountability. And so on that kind of next tier of the social ecology lens, we're looking at that interpersonal. And so on this tier, we encourage people to create kind of an unplugged area of the home, optimally outside of your room, where you can also charge everything at night. So many people are using their phones as clocks, but you can get an older clock. So you don't have to keep your phone next to your bed. So you're not tempted to check it if you wake up at 2 a.m. And so by, you know, leaving everything, for example, in the kitchen by let's say 11 p.m., which is quite late, we're letting everyone know this is what is important to us. This is what is important to our household and no one is in it alone. And so that can be very supportive and this idea of like a charging area can also be playful. You can turn it into like an arts and crafts project, like the head of like a shark or something fun that you can do with your kids. So they're actually eating your iPhones and your iPads and all of these different (laughs) parts, because if we don't keep it playful, then how are we going to engage in it in a way that feels authentic to us? Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Here and International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Right. So you brought up kids. That's an interesting point because I think so much, I mean, we grew up as kids, right? We want to like stay connected to our kids, social media, TikTok, all that stuff. Kids, you know, under their blankets, checking their phones. How can parents help children apart? You know, I guess it's just a matter of like laying down the law, like you're not going to have your bed. Uh, I mean, your, your phone in the bed, but how do you even um, get to the point where you recognize that your child maybe has like an addiction to the phone or that it's starting to kind of bleed into this not healthy relationship with tech? Like how are you, the conversations you're having with parents, what do you say to them? Yeah, kids. Kids are definitely a tricky topic. Um, And I think that a lot of adults have the tendency to just blame the kids and just blame the youth as kind of the generations that are hooked. But if, if we're willing to do the introspection, we may find that we're actually showing them and we're really 
modeling and behavior that is teaching them to be very plugged in. And so we all always encourage, you know, to begin with that personal reflection and introspection. But beyond that, on kind of that third tier of social ecology with the collective is creating a kind of household charter or some type of charter that talks about tech usage and what you do or don't want it to be. And in place of just making a rule, getting kids, getting teens involved in, hey, what should our household rules be? How can we support each other in this can be really great because then you're creating it with them and you're not just telling them. And so that might be, hey, we're all going to put our phones in this area of the kitchen at 11 p.m. Um, and if something urgent comes up for like a project and you have to be up until two, you'll let us know, or just, you know, creating those norms of like, Hey, two hours of TV feels like plenty. We're never going to go over that, but creating those rules as a household also can be very helpful to looking at what are other things we can do outside of tech. For example, if there's a kid who's hooked on just playing this game all the time online, looking at what's going on in that game. Is there any way to recreate that in real life to bring us back onto this plane? Yeah, that's a great idea, especially as we start to move ever closer to the metaverse, like this whole new environment that we're going to live in avatar land. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to already hear that you know, local restaurant, it was written about in the newspaper, has spent $15,000 to have an on metaverse space for its, you know, its operations, its restaurant there as well. So I, I mean, I can't even project out 10 years how it's going to be. But I worry about this blurring line of, you know, are we going to have more fun in the metaverse than in real life? And, you know, there's a tension, I certainly have seen it with my own child, you know, sometimes the Techno my kids five, just to give you context, you know, sometimes the iPhone or an iPad is really helpful if we're cooking dinner, if we're having an important conversation and don't want to be disturbed. But then there's a bit of a tug of war where it becomes like, no, I really want it. I really want it. But we also know that, you know, if you put that away and you have a card game or you're playing on the floor, drawing little pictures, like they don't, they've forgotten about the iPad, even as adolescents, I teach at the undergrad level. I have a tech-free environment. Students are not allowed to use their laptops or phones in my in my classroom. And I know for a lot of them, it's like, what, pens? Like, really? Are you kidding me? Um, I get it. I really get it. But I really want to kind of tough love the whole idea of like, I don't want to give you any opportunity to get bored and have to, you know, go on swiping left and right. And by the end of the semester, I've got students who tell me like, I actually was grateful for those three hours of class when I was tech-free. So I really think there's some upside also to be gained there. I completely agree because we live in a very kind of on-call culture. And so being told, hey, you can't have that in here is almost like an exhale sometimes because you're not expected to respond via text and on Slack and check your email. You can just be and you can just absorb what's happening, which holds such value in and of itself. I just caught myself doing a big breath as you were talking about exhaling. So what about at work? What about at work? We've talked about at family, but like everybody now has to work online because of COVID. I mean, oh, we can never get away from work. What have you got to say about that? Yeah, we're seeing a lot um, with kind of the blurring lines between work and home for those who are engaging in remote or, or hybrid work. And I think 
that is one of the challenges, especially for people who really don't have a home office. Um, and so if you are one of those people, I would encourage you to look around your house and say, okay, how long am I expecting to really continue to work from home? And maybe there's like a couch that you haven't moved in 10 years. What if you moved that couch? And what if you use just like a small corner to have your own home office? When we're thinking about home office and environment and productivity, they're also interconnected in that if we're placing ourselves in an area of our home where we're just being constantly interrupted, of course, we're going to, you know, have a hard time. And they say that for every interaction, every interruption, it can take up to 12 minutes to get back into a place of flow with work. And so how are we communicating with other people in the household to let them know, hey, I'm, an, I'm on a call that's urgent that can't be interrupted for any reason unless the house is burning down. Are we actually, you know, letting folks know to create that environment that we need for focus and for behavior change? Because that's very, very real. So do you, are you one of those people who has um, like a predetermined time in the day where you check your emails? So like twice a day in the AM and the PM and how much time do you allot to that? Or is that not even possible to do anymore? It depends on the day. Uh, for me right now, I'm, I'm not doing that, but I do use um, a great and free little plugin that is called inbox when ready. And so if you were to look at mine yesterday, you would see that I clicked to see, you know, show my inbox 17 times, which is higher than my typical average, but yesterday was not a typical day. And so that's perfectly fine. Right. But the whole point is that you can't just see your inbox and you're not hearing like every ping. Oh, there's an email and you're going to look, it's completely quiet and it's actually hidden. So you have to click on it when you are ready to check your email. And so it's the same kind of idea of doing emails in rounds and in waves. And then something else that I do and I've encouraged others to is, you know, in your kind of email signature to write, here are my traditional hours. Or if you're off, like I take Tuesdays for deep work because we're creating new courses and content. And I really need that protected time on Tuesdays. If you email me almost always, you will get an auto reply that says I'm currently doing deep work. And I saw that you had something as well, because you're working on writing this incredible book. And so that kind of idea of clear is kind, we have to let people know where we are and what we need. And that helps them know, Hey, she's okay. She didn't like drive off the road somewhere. She's just in deep work mode and we'll get back to me soon. Soon. Yeah. Great. Um, so one of the challenges you mentioned is, of course, the blurring of the lines between work uh, at home and work um, at work work. And you've talked about, you know, moving the sofa. What do you think is going to happen when we do go back? Do you think there's ever going to be a going back or do you think that um, this is the new normal and, you know, we do need digital wellness more than ever for the rest of our lives? It is my hope that digital wellness will just kind of become a part of wellness that people know all along. But right now it's something that we've had to teach as things have changed drastically. And so to answer your question, I think that people will begin to go back to work. Some people really want and crave that in-person in kind of interaction and they're extroverted and they're going to be seeking those jobs um, we're also seeing that a, a lot of companies are beginning to give employees a certain kind of 
amount to create their home office, which is, which is great because we need to be focusing on our like ergonomics and we need to make sure that we have good light. And, you know, I actually just finished work on a home office behind our house. And so I have this like little office pod, which is where I go. And my husband happens to be using it today because he has a big presentation, but we'll switch and we'll use that sometimes. And that's been so helpful because he has this big booming voice. And, you know, even if I'm at the other side of the house, it will find me wherever I am. And so knowing what you need and having that clarity to kind of change your environment can be a invitation to play and to adapt. And I think that a lot of people were just kind of holding their breath and waiting to see when will this change? Um, but what I see is I see us moving from kind of a situation where COVID and remote work is something that happened to us to a different, more empowerment oriented place of, Hey, now I'm choosing to do remote work. And if I'm choosing to, what does wellness look like for me in that kind of consciously chosen environment? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that some of your work works, I guess you work with individuals, but also with organizations to set up the digital wellness program that it meets the needs of that particular organization or individual? Is that your work? Yes. Yeah. So we have, um, we do a lot of keynotes and trainings, and then we have a 10 week program for people who kind of want to become new educators in this in this area. Um, and that's usually used as like a continuous education kind of add on to underlying education because a lot of people don't know the latest research and terminology and all of the things that we're needing to adapt in, in present time. So we're seeing like HR leaders take this employees and a lot of different people in, I would say the health promotion industry, broadly speaking. Beautiful. What was Digital Wellness Day about? Digital Wellness Day is the nonprofit arm um, of our organization. So Digital Wellness Day, um, you can learn more at digitalwellnessday.com. It is, it is a holiday that we created, which is such a goofy and fun process to create a holiday. So this is the third year that we've run it. Um, and it just went crazy. Last year, I think we had events in 26 countries. And it is an opportunity for people to really rethink and optimize their relationship with tech. So we have a free toolkit full of kind of different resources that people can access to have their own practices or to organize their own events. And then we also have key events that we hold in accordance with the different aspects of the flourishing wheel. And so it's a really, I think, good time um, for people to look at the intersection of health, their habits, and tech use. And this week, um, and this year, it is on May 6th, 2022. Beautiful. We'll have information again in our description. I want to ask you two more questions. You've been really a fabulous guest to have a conversation about. You know, we talked in the um, pre-show before we hit record that I see this dialogue in the space of like self-empathy, right? We have to care for our our own well-being, our mental well-being and our digital wellness too, as part of this continuum of kind of living our our best lives. So so thank you. Okay, so let's talk specifically about Zoom fatigue, if you've got any tips there, uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll wrap it up with the last question. Sure. So Zoom fatigue, um, why it happens is unlike 
real life where everything's happening kind of pretty quickly, um, everything can be a little bit delayed on Zoom. And we've even had a few of those challenges today just for like half a second here and there. And so this kind of uh, asynchronous eye contact can be exhausting over time because we're trying to keep in touch and we're trying to remain connected, but it's not real in the sense that that it really isn't in flow. Um, and so talking to employees, talking to colleagues about, hey, do we really need to have our cameras on? Can we turn them off? Can we go outside and take a and and take some kind of a meeting while we're walking or something like that? But the easiest thing that you can do is you can turn off your self view because us trying to check our hair and kind of fix things while we're on with someone else can be extremely distracting and also bring us out of what our colleagues might be talking about and so those are just kind of two things that you can try as soon as this afternoon or tomorrow where's this function of taking off your self-view yeah so under under view there will be an option to hide self-view and it's so small and it's so powerful. Oh, I'm going to try that out. That's an excellent uh, tip. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, because I think naturally we're just drawn to looking at ourselves, even we though are. it's not just because we're like full of vanity or anything, but um, that's, okay. That's super interesting. Yeah. yeah. We're just, um, <laughs> a last question I love asking my guests is when you, and I, and I imagine maybe I'm projecting and I may just want to hear the answer, but um, based on the story you told me at the top end of this conversation, like, but it doesn't have to be from that early part of your life. It could be any time. Can you think of a time when you were on the receiving end of empathy on purpose, purposeful empathy, and what that meant for you? Yeah, this is definitely one that hits close to home. And I've done a lot of exploration on this. Um, in those early years, when I had a very hard time talking, people would try to talk on my behalf, um, because they could kind of see I was uncomfortable. I was having a block. I was having a hard time with the words. So they would just kind of chime in and try to help me. And it was well intended. Um, but it was also really kind of interesting for me because in all of my trainings, I was taught that even if I was having a hard time to really take my time and to express that word, even if it took a little bit of extra time. And so the practice for me, because this happened a lot, um, was letting whoever was trying to help know that I so appreciate your help. And this is why I need to do it on my own. And really explaining to them because people in general, I believe are wired to help and they're wired to want to tap into, you know, where someone else is and resolve conflict or pain wherever they can. Um, and so par part of kind of my journey has just been a lot of education around fluency and letting other people know like, yes, I am having a hard time. Yes, you are correct. Yes, that is real for me. And I need to do this on my own. Otherwise I will get into the habit of having other people talk for me. Um, and I think that this has just been such a powerful journey for me because it really shows me that we need to be doing introspection in addition to assuming that we know what other people want, even if it is coming from this place of 
empathy. Um, and again, the idea of clear is kind and kind is clear and people don't know unless we tell them. And that has to do with how we want to talk, how we want to be in our home, how we want to be plugged into our tech. It just kind of amplifies itself in so many different areas um, of human essence and human communication. Um, but I do believe that everyone wants to help. Um, and I do believe that everyone wants to be a change agent in their own way. And it's just up to us to tell them how we want to be supported if they do want to be involved in our journey. Yeah, I think that story, what, what it suggests to me is that if you want to empathize well, then it's not a bad thing to ask what someone might need from you. Um, so thank you for that. I really, I really, that was a lovely way to end our conversation. Nina, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Good luck with all of your work. I know that there are many decades of work ahead of you. <laughs> and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thanks, Anita. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.